You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Once again, all, it is good to see you. Uh, Earlier this week, I got to have dinner with my new landlord at a restaurant that some of you may be familiar with called The Monocle on Capitol Hill. Uh, He's been in politics for decades, and it was a really good conversation. But what he was really interested in hearing uh, was, how in the world do you start a church in Washington, D.C.? Uh, He was just so fascinated. He's been here for 30 years, worked in multiple uh, different waves of uh, of politics, and he's just never seen anything like that. Someone, uh, people who would come to this city and start a church. And it was uh, quite the interesting conversation, and I hope there will be more. But today, the topic of the church is front and center. Over the last three weeks, we've been doing a mini-series in the book of Acts, in our study through uh, this book of Acts called The Spirit, the Gospel, and the Church. And today we're on part three of that series, and we're looking at the church through these pretty amazing summary verses that Mag just read. You'll remember that a few weeks ago, we looked at how the church was relaunched, retasked, and rebooted here in Acts 2 with the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Uh, If you were with us, you remember that about 40 days after Jesus resurrected from the dead, a small group of his followers were in a, a room, and all of a sudden, a sound like a, a rushing wind filled the room, and all of a sudden, they start praising God and speaking in languages that they didn't know, speaking in the native tongues of all of these people who were there at that international festival in Jerusalem. And then last week, if you were here with us, you'll remember that as all this is happening, Uh, Some of the onlookers thought that these early Christians were drunk. Uh, They thought they they were day drinkers. And so Peter, one of their own, stands up and he explains in detail the gospel and the first ever Christian sermon. And thousands and thousands of people become Christians. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. They trust him for their salvation and they're baptized. And what we we see is that the church begins to grow like wildfire. And this week, we find ourselves looking at the end of Acts chapter 2, where we see some summary statements about the culture and the heartbeat of the church. And what we'll see today is that if you were to ask yourself, what made the church so attractive and so compelling? Well, the answer is that it is categorized by a radical unselfishness. They gave themselves away. They were not about themselves. They were all about Christ. They were all about his mission. They were all about other people. And this shocked the world. And so that's really my big idea this morning. The church is categorized by a radical unselfishness. Or said another way, perhaps a positive way, the church is categorized by radical generosity. Now these verses are very significant to us as A church, if you're new with us this morning, we've been very, very influenced by these verses we're about to study this morning. If you've been with us for a while, you're going to see that this is one of the passages where we draw a lot of the culture 
and the heartbeat of King's Church from. We've been very influenced by this passage as a church. And so today we're going we're gonna to kind of lift the hood on King's Church and look at our engines this morning. We're going to look at what the Bible seems to say about what a healthy church should be all about. As I study this passage, I see nine marks, particularly nine observations about the early church, and they're going to flow right out of the passage. Uh, here at King's Church, we believe the Bible. We want to say what the Bible says. And so here are these nine observations that we see here in Acts chapter 2. Number one, they were committed to the scriptures. Two, a prioritizing of fellowship. Three, celebrating the Lord's Supper and prayer. Four, trusting God to do surprising things. Five, they were together and united. Six, they were radically generous. Seven, happy and full. Eight, they had favor with all the people. And nine, they were growing in number. So let's look at our first committed to the scriptures. Verse 42 says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, the book of Acts that we're studying is short for the book of the Acts of the Apostles. The book is essentially a record of the ongoing actions of Jesus Christ through these apostles by his spirit. Essentially, the apostles were uniquely handpicked by Jesus himself to represent him and to do his work. They were essentially his spokespeople. They were his agents, his EAs, so to speak. Uh, we sometimes think of the apostles as the 12 apostles, uh, but this group was much larger than that. It likely included people like Paul and Barnabas, and maybe even people like Apollos and Timothy, Junia, and Silas. Uh, to be an apostle also carried uh, quite the number of qualifications. You had to see the resurrected Christ, you had to be explicitly chosen by the Spirit, and you had, the, had to have the ability to do signs and wonders. And also, just another note, when the apostles died out, they died out. Uh, so today we don't have any formal apostles in that sense, right? Paul says that both the apostles and the prophets serve as the foundation of the church in Ephesians, right? We're not building any more foundation. Uh, rather, we're a structured, the church that's being built day by day by God and his spirit. Now, during their lives, these apostles explained the Old Testament, and they taught about Jesus, and they fleshed out the implications of the resurrection and the life of Jesus in powerful ways. And the passage begins by saying that the church was committed to the teachings of these apostles, essentially because they were committed to Jesus and they recognized them as real and true messengers of Jesus. And today what makes for a good church is still the same thing, that they're committed to the teachings of the apostles. And those teachings of the apostles are what we today call the New Testament, and by extension, the words of the prophets, the Old Testament, the Bible, right? A good church, the church that's worth its salt, is committed to them because they're committed to Jesus, and they recognize them as real and true. Now, here at King's Church, this is really, really, really important to us. And all of our small groups and our events and even here on Sunday, we want to say what the Bible says. We don't want to fluff stuff up or explain parts of the Bible away. We don't want to make things up. 
We don't want to unite around just a pastor or a big personality. We want to go back to the source itself. And we want to work out its implications in our lives and our relationships and our community. We want to do what's called exposition over topical because we want to draw out the main point of the text rather than the point that we think or I think will inspire us all. So that's number one. They had a commitment to the scriptures. I often like to say if you're checking out Christianity this morning, it would be best to go back to the source of Christianity. And that's the primary source, the Bible. There's no need to dress it up. There's, there's no need to make things up. It's powerful enough. It's wise enough to speak for itself. Number two, another observation we see is that the early church prioritized fellowship. They were devoted to the fellowship, verse 42. Fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia, and it essentially means close association or mutual participation. It has to do with sharing life together, living in God's love together, and living for the same purposes. Now, the early church absolutely majored in this. They knew each other. Uh, No one ultimately stayed anonymous. There were no church ninjas, we like to say. They were inclusive in that they welcomed all sorts of kinds of people into their community who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. They were a tight-knit group. Now, again, here at King's Church, As we're lifting up the hood this morning, this is again a major focus of who we are. We aim to know you and for you to know us, warts and all. We don't want to be a church that's just a religious product that we receive on Sunday. We actually want to continue to become a family here in Washington. And like the early church here, we want to continue to welcome all sorts of kinds of people into the community who have come to faith in Christ, whether they're old or young whether they're middle-aged, whether they're hill staffers, whether they're artists, whether they're Uber drivers, and everything in between. Together, we want to unite around our common identity in Jesus Christ. I once heard a pastor tell a story about how a gang member out in California became a Christian. And for months and months, he was so excited about his newfound faith in Jesus. But over time, he started realizing that the community he found in the church was so shallow compared to his gang that he eventually walked away from the church. He thought when he was joining the church that it would be a body where everybody had his back, where everybody knew him warts and all. And he found out that it was superficial. He found out it was just surfacey. We don't want that to ever be said about us here at King's Church. We live in a day and age where being anonymous in church is the norm, where being known and knowing others is considered weird, but we're okay with weird, we're okay with awkward, we're okay with flaws because we have Christ, and when we unite around him, we're all welcome to the table. We're all loved, we're all accepted, we're all welcomed by his great mercy. Number three, I see uh, they were celebrating the Lord's Supper and prayer, verse 42. They were devoted to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, the phrase breaking of bread here in Greek has a definite article which makes it read the bread. That's essentially shorthand, most would say. It's a reference to the Lord's 
Supper or communion. And of course, that practice involves taking bread, taking wine, and symbolically eating and drinking those elements in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice for our sin and the life to come. It's all over the New Testament, and it's an ordinance in the church. Essentially, what's being said here is that when they come together, there's more than just music, the word, and fellowship. There's also a celebration of the Lord's Supper and prayer together. Now, at King's Church, if you've been here for any amount of time, you'll recognize that not only do we pray in every service, but we also take the Lord's Supper in every service. We do this because of verses like this, but also because of the message that the Lord's Supper speaks. It automatically speaks an object lesson. It speaks the central message of Christianity every week to us, that Jesus died for us, that he rose again for us, and that by receiving him, we can have life, that our sins can be washed, that our record can be cleaned, that God can raise us to life and give us new perspective and new hope. It's good news because if someone ever misses the gospel up here, if I ever miss the gospel up here, the Lord's Supper is going to speak the gospel. If someone comes up, Wesley or I or whomever, and we miss the central message of the Bible, the good news is that God's ordinance, God's Lord's Supper, speaks the message of the gospel. Another mark, fourthly, is to trust God. They had a trust in God to do surprising things. Verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, the book of Acts will only get more wild after this. We'll see in the next chapter, Peter supernaturally healing a disabled man. And later on, things like prison doors flying open by an earthquake, people being raised from the dead. God was doing something very special during that time. Now today, while we don't have apostles, we still think that God can do the impossible. He's still committed to doing his work in the world. And as a church, we want to believe that and make room to be surprised by God to do the impossible here in D.C. We want to leave room for what the Lord wants to do with us as a church, how he might use us collectively and individually to impact D.C. and this world, what a building or a new location might look like for us here at King's Church as we are quickly outgrowing this space, how new ministries and international work will develop, expectations about new people who will join and will participate in the life of the church and the work of the church here in Washington, and so many other things that perhaps we're not even thinking about. Some good questions for us this morning as we think about God doing the impossible, God surprising us. Do you have any expectations for God to break into your life or get involved in your life in the weeks and the months ahead? If so, what does that look like? Do you have any expectations for God to break in and get involved in your weeks and months ahead? If so, what does that look like? And number two, have you left room for things to not be the same in your life because the Lord is alive? Have you left room for things to not be the same in your life because the Lord is alive? They trusted God to do surprising things. Fifthly, another mark, another observation is they were together and united. Verse 44, 
and all who believed were together and had all things in common. The point being made here is that the early church couldn't get enough of each other. Uh, the passage is filled with references describing the church as people who were together. Uh, they were live and in person together. Uh, they almost saw regular life as an interruption to spending time together. There was a hunger to be together because they had something so important in common. Their salvation in Jesus Christ and all of its implications. Now, some of you over the years have been subject to pastors, hopefully not us, who have either subtly or not so subtly tried to get you to come to church or tried to get you to come to church events. I hope we never have come across that way. But what's so interesting here in this passage is that there's no call like that in the book of Acts. Uh, there's, there's never, hey, come to church, or hey, come to this event. It's just the opposite. Christians wanted to be together. There's a desire to be together because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in the other person. Uh, a good illustration of this is a, a famous British doctor turned preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Jones, rather. During World War II, he was a pastor, and there were many Christian allied soldiers that were stationed from all over the world where uh, Lloyd-Jones was pastoring. Uh, they were from all sorts of cultures and classes, and he says that these Christian soldiers would often come into his study after his sermon. And this is so good how he puts it. He says instantly they would realize they knew him, and he knew them. Uh, he didn't mean that they had met before or that they had a mutual friend or a relative. It meant that there was a deep spiritual connection. There was a deep commonality between them that was deeper than national ties or race or ethnicity or political ties. And this is the same for us here at King's Church. If you find yourself having faith in Jesus Christ this morning, we have the same spirit. We are brothers and sisters. We have the same Lord. And no matter what class or background or race you're from, we have ultimate unity in him. Sixth, another observation was they were radically generous. Number uh, Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, some people read this and they say, is this Christian communism? Uh, like real Christianity would uh, give all of our money to a central account and then we would draw our salary from that account. I don't think so. I think this is more about compassion and radical generosity towards others. Uh, the bottom line of what's going, what's going on here in this, this particular verse is people that had met Jesus they were so transformed by him, they had a heart to care for others who had needs. Uh, they were willing to be inconvenienced and generous with their money and belongings because the love of Christ had made such a deep impact. Now, this radical generosity actually made early Christians pretty famous, uh, and you see evidences of it in writings back then. For instance, one major critic of Christianity, Lucian, who was a Greek philosopher, tries to mock the Christian faith, and he says this, Their founder taught them that they should be like brothers and sisters to one another, and therefore they despise their own privacy and view their possessions as common property. As a church, we want the same critique. 
We want to be known not just for our great community, but for our radically generous community and our time and our talents and our treasures. We want to be able to give ourselves away. We want to be radically unselfish to show God off to people in this world. Number seven, another mark, another observation was they're happy and full. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. They were happy foodies. They, I just love how significant meals are in the Bible. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, coming from a meal, or he's at a meal. Uh, Jesus himself gets labeled as a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And the New Testament ends on the note that uh, all of us who know him are at a great banquet where we're all around the table. Meals can be really, really significant. Some of our best life moments are around the table eating great food with great friends and family. And God made it that way. And we want to encourage you, eat. Don't reinvent the wheel. If you're looking for a way to love somebody, if you're looking for a way to reach out to somebody, if you're looking for a way to celebrate all that God is doing in your life and somebody else's life, go have a meal. Give thanks to God together. Look across the table at all the gifts you have, all the blessings you have, and praise God like the early church. This is big. If you've been here for a while, you know this is a big part of all that we are. Number eight, they had favor with the community. Verse 47, and having favor with the people. Now, there are times when following Jesus can get us in trouble, and we'll see that in Acts as we continue this study, but there are also a lot of times when following Jesus should be attractive, and the early church experienced this at times as well. That attractiveness gained them converts, but also honor in society. They were modeling a new kind of community different from the world. Now, here at King's Church, we strive for that as well. Uh, We want lots of friends, uh, even those who don't share our beliefs, to say, Okay, I don't believe what you believe, but you live it out, and it's really good. And I'm not going to go to church with you, but you're a really, really great friend, and you really are good at what you do. We ultimately want them to know Jesus, but we also want our lives to show off the goodness of God to all. And the ninth, they were recipients of growth. Verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. In effect, they experienced growth. They were being the church, and God was working in big waves in the lives of people. And today, God is still doing his work. And those of you who've been around here for some time, you've probably noticed we've grown significantly. The Lord is up to something around here, and we want to continue being a real church. That's a safe place for people who are far from God to be brought near to God, all because the Lord is good. Now, these nine observations help us to really understand the culture and the heartbeat of the early church. It was radically unselfish. They weren't all about themselves. 
They were filled with generosity. They were filled with hope. Eventually, that culture and that heartbeat continued on in history, and as the church kept growing, especially over the next three centuries, it actually deeply impacted and even replaced Greek and Roman Empire ways of thinking and cultural ideas. It was a powerful, powerful force. Ideas took root from the church that we take granted today, like forgiveness of our enemies instead of revenge, universal human rights for all, no matter what class or ability or inability they possess, equality in God's eyes of male and female, slave and free, a new energy towards innovation from the church took off, launching ideas like poverty relief, care for the sick, hospitals, universities, and orphanages. It was all because they had this culture and heartbeat of being radically unselfish. They gave themselves away. They weren't all about themselves. They were filled with a generosity and a love and a hope. They had a bigger vision for life than just themselves. Now, the most important question of this morning is where did that self-giving, where did that radical unselfishness come from? Well, it came from Jesus Christ. It didn't just come from a group of people who decided they would be devoted, that they would be selfless. No, it came from Jesus Christ, who was radically unselfish, who really did give himself away. When Jesus Christ came into the world, he left all his greatness and his power behind. He gave himself away. He was radically unselfish. He took his, his hands off of his life. He emptied himself of his glory so that we could become beautiful. And when Christians came to understand this, they realized that for the first time in history, and the only time that there was a faith coming that said this is ultimate reality. No other religion before and since then no other ideology or philosophy has ever said that God Almighty gave himself away. At the heart of ultimate reality and ultimate living isn't to hold on to power or wealth or glory, but instead to give it away to give yourself away to other people, to give yourself away to others. And that's exactly what God did in Christ. He gave himself up to die on a cross. And that changes everything. It changed everything for the early church. It made them radically unselfish. It became an attractive force that changed the world. And we desire to have that same drawing of power from the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, the God who emptied himself out for us, the God who gave himself away for us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.